We are back. This is episode two. Our focus group has listened to the pilot and they gave us the go ahead. And we're grateful for that, for their time and Matt, because as you explained so eloquently in the intro to the pilot, this is a podcast with a little bit of a mission. Right. We're looking back to the ancient gods, going to the bench, auditioning to bring back the best of the best Mm. and only the best out of retirement to try and help out this troubled, troubled world. Oh, yes. Because as of this recording, it's still a troubled world. Pilot didn't fix it. No, no. Sadly, it's not. <laughs> still a mess out there. It's not great. But not great. No. But we always knew this would be a longer term process, right? That's right. In fact, our plan is that this is only season one. We're what we're calling season one. Greco-Roman style. Season one is going to focus on the gods from the Greco-Roman tradition. Mm. And the winner from this season will get the golden goat. And then in the future, they will be joined by future winners from different traditions, such as Egyptian, Aztec, Mm. Norse, Mesopotamian. We're looking for the best of the best. It's a very deep bench. Very deep bench. And they'll all join our new ecumenical pantheon of super friends golden goat winners (laughs) so let's get started i'm andrew here with matt this is god versus god episode two of season one greco-roman style demeter versus cupid and i'm gonna go first uh and i chose or fate chose for me uh demeter of course, I've been saying Demeter my whole <laughs> life, which maybe maybe is not going to score her points in the uh, iconography round. But uh, the correct pronunciation, as it turns out, is Demeter. Uh, so let's start off with a little em- etymology, shall we? Uh, the last part of Demeter's name, the meter part, is almost certainly means mother. And uh, as we sh- will see... Demeter has strong maternal associations. Mm. There's less consensus about the first part, though. Um, it's either derived from geo for earth to make her an earth mother mm-hmm. or dio for barley to make <laughs> her a barley mother. A sort of <laughs> has, has sort of a some sort of fraternity mother vibe. I was going to say like a <laughs> mama beer type figure. That's, yes. Uh, that's great. Um, yes. Uh, the weight of opinion actually is on it being barley mother. So mm. you can just kind of keep that picture in your mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Rome, she was known as Ceres, uh, which is originally from a proto Indo-European word for nourishment. Mm-hmm. And Ceres is where we get the word cereal. So next time you're enjoying a little Captain Crunch <laughs> or Lucky Charms, you can shout out, give a little thanks to Ceres. Of course, oh. I think the proto-Indo-Europeans would say we've, we've lost the nourishment part of that, uh, <laughs> of that meaning, but there sure. you go. Uh, so Demeter then is an agricultural goddess specifically uh, associated with grains. Uh, but since all the Greek gods have multiple jobs uh, she was also has a function as a lawgiver goddess which we'll discuss she has associations with the seasons and wealth through the harvest 
and also rebirth. Uh, Demeter's own birth, uh, she was the daughter of Cronus and Rhea. Cronus being the king of the Titans, were the pre-Olympic gods, and Rhea being an earth uh, goddess. Poseidon, Hades, and Zeus were her brothers. Hera and Hestia were her sisters. So it's a real, it's a power family. I was going to say, quite a family tree. There. Yeah, it's, it's like a Kennedy-esque, Kardashian-esque. It's <laughs> yeah. the two combined, something <laughs> like that. Uh, she's not, not only uh, part of the, the 12 Olympians, but the original six. That's it, yes. Olympics, yeah, the, the OGs. So uh, the old gods. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about in, in Zeus's episode, but uh, due to a prophecy that one of his children would overthrow him, uh, Cronus swallowed each one of the kids. Eventually, Zeus, who escaped this fate, does overthrow Cronus and freed his siblings. Ironically, part of Zeus's motivation for overthrowing uh, his father was the fact that his father was eating all the siblings. Yeah, I was going to say, that's uh, he's got to do something. Yeah, so it's one of these, these uh, self-fulfilling prophecies that the Greeks uh, always loved. So we can kind of skip over her childhood or say she was uh, raised by her father in a way because uh, she grew up in his stomach. Uh, <laughs> by the time uh, she's freed by Zeus, uh, forcing Kronos to regurgitate her and her siblings, they're all adults. So it's wow. kind of a... Kind of a scene. So getting her, her early sense of nutrition by being the very nutrition that her father. Yes. Was, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, that's, that's true. Though that was for, uh, the fact for all of them had kind of a, an interesting, interesting adolescence. Uh, immediately yes. then they have the Titomachy, which is a battle with the Titans, which is a 10 year war between the Olympic gods and the Titans to see who's ultimately going to be uh, supreme. And obviously the, uh, the Olympic gods win. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in the immortal combat round and her mm. role in it. But I'm going to kind of save that uh, for then. So on her children, uh, Demeter goes on to ha- Demeter goes on to have um, a few children, most prominently Persephone, uh, whose father is Zeus, mm-hmm. also her brother. Yes. Uh, as and- was the style at the time. Yes. <laughs> as was the style at the time. And we'll talk about that shortly. Um, by some accounts, Dionysus was her son. Mm. Uh, now I know that the account that you had last episode had Persephone, which is, which is another uh, tradition. So I think we're going to stick with uh, the Persephone. Uh, so podcast can kind of function as a pagan uh, council of Nicaea, <laughs> uh, deciding how, how, you know, getting exactly. stuff ironed out. We're just, we're calling the shots. Someone's yeah, got to do it. Yeah, we got to get this get this stuff straight. Um, so, on one occasion, at least, uh, Demeter had children with a mortal, uh, mortal named Aeson, uh, who she met at the wedding of Cadmus and Harmonia, mm. um, who always seems to show up. Cadmus is sort of a ancient Zelig figure. <laughs> um, so Demeter and Aeson uh, get together. Uh, in the quote thrice plowed field, hmm. which all the accounts seem to mention that the field had been plowed thrice. Very, very important. The first very two important. don't quite cut it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, 
in any case, Zeus, in a bit of massive godlike hypocrisy, gets jealous. Hmm. Uh, Imagine decides, that. Yes, and decides that the union is beneath Demeter's dignity. Hmm. Uh, so he kills Aeson on the spot with a lightning bolt. Oh, my goodness. So, uh, Hell of a wedding traumatic. present. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, that, that reception got a little, little wild. Um, but from this tryst, uh, Demeter had twins, uh, Plutus, not to be, uh, cons- uh, confused with Pluto, who's the Roman version of Hades, but Plutus, who goes on to become the God of wealth and Philomelus, who is somewhat less successful and does not become a God, um, but in, in addition to her strictly agricultural pursuits and wedding receptions, uh, Demeter also had a general affinity for nature and had different sacred groves of trees all around. Uh, one story shows that Demeter wasn't necessarily a pushover. Uh, in this story, a Greek prince named Erisichthon in Thessaly, which is Northern Greece uh, sets out to cut down some trees out of Demeter's sacred grove. And I'll take this from uh, Callimachus, hymn number six mm. to Demeter. So I just imagine this being sung in a temple of some sort. You're going to uh, speak it though, not sing yeah, it. I'm, I'm going to speak okay. it. Yeah. It, it, the translation's not in, in verse, sadly. Um, and, and the uh, notations have been lost. So <laughs> Erisichthon hastened with 20 attendants, all in their prime, all men giants, able to lift a whole city. Wow. Aiming, arming them with both double axes and with hatchets, they rushed shamelessly into the grove of Demeter. So Erisichthon gets the 20 biggest dudes he can find. Men giants. Men giants can lift whole cities. Uh, of course, cities were smaller then, but still, <laughs> still impressive. Um, so they, they go into the sacred forest, start chopping trees. And in the middle, there's the giant poplar tree, uh, which is like the biggest one, kind of sticks out. And it is, of course, the most, uh, most sacred to uh, Demeter. Um, and they start chopping that. And Demeter gets kind of at her arbor sense starts tangling. But, mm. Something's wrong with the trees. Um, Ovid has a version of it in the Metamorphosis. um, And he claims that one of Erisichthon's men tried to stop him from chopping down the tree. And Erisichthon chopped his head off. Oh. And so, you know, head rolls, blood's gushing out. And then he chops into the poplar tree and blood starts coming out of the tree as well. My goodness. So it's just that kind of scene. Yeah. Uh, again, Demeter's arbor sense is going crazy. <laughs> so she shows up and uh, but she's not in her, her goddess form. She's dis- disguised as one of her priestesses. And she says to Erisichthon, my child who cut us down the trees, which are dedicated to the gods, stay, my child, child of thy parents' prayers, cease and turn back thine attendance, lest Lady Demeter be angered whose holy place you make desolate. So she's given him a chance. She's like, you've chopped this dude's head off. You're chopping the trees, but you know, maybe have some second thoughts about yeah, this. First couple chops are free, but you yeah. Know. 
no. to a point. Yeah. And then so he he Erisichthon does not uh, stop. And he, he says, in fact, back, lest my great axe in thy flesh, these trees shall make a tight dwelling wherein I evermore shall hold pleasing banquets enough for my companions. So which that comes back to haunt me like he's <laughs> house is too small. He needs an entertainment room. Right. So sacred grove or not, he's cutting them down. You got to have your dinner parties. I mean, yeah. So he's got, that's his priority. Uh, but so it, Demeter's finally angry enough to throw off her, her disguise and assumes her goddess shape. And it says that her steps touched the earth, but her head reached Olympus. Ooh. So she goes 50 foot woman. Yeah. On them or fifty so these foot men, goddess. These men giants are no match for no Demeter and no. full goddess. So, so the men giants all just drop their axes and run. They're out. But yeah, they're, they're they didn't sign up for this. No. Uh, plus, let's ever the guy who who had his head chopped off. He, he, he stayed. He remained. He stayed right there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so, uh, Demeter says, "Yea, build thy house, dog, dog that thou art, wherein thou shalt hold festival." For frequent banquets shall be thine hereafter. That doesn't sound so bad. No. Sure. Go ahead. Build your house. Frequent banquets will be yours thereafter. But uh, what this means is she has cursed him with a ravenous hunger, burning hunger that can never be sated. Uh, So he goes back. He's just constantly eating and eating. He bankrupts his father, the king, uh, because he's eating so much. He eats the horses out of the stables. Donkeys. Uh, specifically says that he ate the cat. <laughs> so, he so, must have been ravenous. Yeah, yeah, because they just no, never has a, has a cat seemed like mm, that's going to be tasty. No. Uh, and then uh, bankrupts his father. Uh, so he's starving or he's uh, begging on the street. And then uh, go back to Ovid. He says the ill starred the ill starred wretch began to gnaw himself and dwindled bite by bite as his own flesh supplied his burning hunger. Thank goodness. So he just goes back and starts. And you got to be strategic about that. You, got- <laughs> you can't, you can't, can't, if you go for the hands first, it's right there. That's right. Maybe, yeah. maybe a foot. No, so, so. Uh, but uh, he figured it out. was able to go for a little while, at least according to, to Ovid. So, uh, I mean, we'll see here in, in the, the next and this is the big story about Demeter, but, uh, you know, she does like to put on the mortal guys and kind of see how things are going. It's so, a classic uh, mythology move. I mean, yes. it's, it's a signature style for, for all these folks. And, the, and, and she, she, she was, uh, she's one of the better ones at it. Mm. So uh, this is the myth of uh, Persephone. Uh, so it was her daughter, Demeter and her daughter, by all accounts, were very close, uh, nearly inseparable. Uh, however, Hades had fallen in love with Persephone. And uh, according to at least one version, it was by Cupid's arrow. Oh, that he that he foreshadowed that that uh, Venus uh, bade Cupid to uh, get Hades in love. She felt like Hades needed to be hitched up, um, been a bachelor for too long. Yeah. And uh, so Hades goes to Zeus, who is. Persephone's father and uncle and his brother and asked permission uh, to marry Persephone. But, but Zeus realizes that Demeter 
would never agree to have her daughter go down and live full time in the underworld. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he just kind of chickens out, says, yeah, sure, go ahead, but don't tell anybody. Just go and grab her. That that's Zeus's kind of uh, king of the gods solution for this. Yeah, he's got kind of a hands off manager. Something. <laughs> yeah, he just just says, "All right, go ahead." Uh, uh, but I but we this this conversation never happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hades finds a time when Persephone is away from her attendants and away from her mother, and his chariot bursts up out of the earth. He grabs her, um, and the chariot keeps rolling on, and then. She's yelling the whole time, and then the chariot goes right back down below the earth. Um, a little while later, Demeter comes back, um, but the tracks have all been covered over by some pesky wandering pigs, mm-hmm. and uh, so she doesn't know what's happened. Um, and then she, according to the hymn, the Homer's hymn to Demeter, uh, the headband on her hair she tore off with her own immortal hands and threw a dark cloak over her shoulders and sped off like a bird soaring over land and sea looking and looking but no one was willing to tell her the truth mm. so she's looking and i think that the, no one's willing to tell her the truth a lot of people or celestial beings gods know but because of uh, zeus they're not saying anything so right. she searches for nine days and knights uh, all over the Mediterranean. She's got a uh, chariot being pulled by dragons, wow. flying dragons. Uh, day and night, she's searching, not eating, not sleeping. Uh, and then on the 10th day, Hecate, who is the goddess of magic and witches, tells her that she heard an echo of Persephone's screams, but she didn't actually see anything and suggests that they go to Helios, who course we know uh sees a lot of stuff he does and helios owns up to it that he did see the abduction um and he tells demeter about it and uh then there's kind of a so this actually upsets her more i mean at least she knows where uh her daughter is but you know to her her daughter is dead basically because she's uh stuck in the underworld right and the gods try and convince her that it's fine hades you know from a good family happens to be her own uh, but she isn't having any of it. And uh, like I said, she, to her, it's though her daughter's dead. And so she goes into grief mode. Um, and part of that is she banishes herself from Olympus. She's not going to come back. Uh, and she goes wandering around Greece uh, in a uh, guise of a human, guise of an old woman, um, and has exiled herself. Eventually she comes to the town of uh, Ulysses, which, uh, and she gets taken in by this family, becomes very involved in the local king's family uh, because they have a sick baby son. And she's nursing the prince uh, back to health, who they all think is, is going to die. She anoints him with ambrosia, gives him a little goddess breath treatment, mm. which apparently is, works wonders, uh, clears up his asthma. Uh, then at night, uh, she puts the baby in the fire. What? <laughs> yes, well, that's you're you're, uh, you're channeling the mother's uh, feelings on this, uh, but not to kill him, but to make him immortal. So somehow 
it's you know gonna bake him immortal i'm not i don't i know the physics of it aren't really (laughs) aren't really explained um but uh the baby's mother sees this and has a reaction similar similar to yours understandable Uh, yes that would be a good instinct maybe more animated Mm -hmm. um and Demeter gets a little angry that she she ruined her her project. I was I was going to turn your son into a god. You've ruined it with your screaming and your noise. I mean, maybe a heads up to the mom beforehand <laughs> to explain yeah. this might have uh, but eased she, the she's, situation. She's in her mortal guise, so this kind of shakes Demeter out of this this interaction that she reassumes her her goddess yeah. uh, image, and she tells them right, you know. I did nurse your son back to health. He's not going to be immortal because you ruined it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, build me a temple. Uh, and I'm going to play host there. Uh, this is going to be my, my hangout for a while. Um, but she, she also comes up with a plan how to get her daughter back. She refuses to let any crops grow throughout the world. So she's going to starve the world until her daughter is returned. That is, I mean, talk about a scorched earth strategy. That is, yes, uh, this is just literally <laughs> scorching the earth. Uh, and Zeus sends a parade of gods trying to convince uh, Demeter to relent. Um, but uh, the, the hymn says, but Demeter stubbornly rejected all their words for she vowed that she would never set foot on fragrant Olympus, nor let fruit spring out of the ground until she saw her daughter again. And Zeus, you know, he likes his sacrifices. He likes the attention he gets from the mortals. Right. So, you know, he's in a little bit of bind. And eventually he relents. And he sends Hermes down to Hades. Tell him, you know, the jig is up. Yeah. Uh, you know, we got to return her. But uh, there's a stipulation that's only if Persephone hasn't eaten anything. Of course, she's been down there for a while. Um, and it turns out she has eaten one pomegranate seed wow while she was down there and it's that pretty it. hot down there so you would think uh just yeah the sheer need to hydrate and, and let alone the nutrients you need more than that that's uh yeah no that, great that was it. but but sadly that that was enough um <sighs> so then there ensues some some negotiation said, all right well let's uh let's figure this out um and the deal that comes through is that persephone has to return to hades uh for a third of the year uh, during which Demeter refuses to let plants grow. Mm. And that is how we get winter. I think I see that coming. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So, so that was part of the negotiation. Yes. That was part of the, part of the deal. And she says, says, fine. But during that part of the year, nothing's going to come out of the ground. Yeah. So, um, and uh, just a little bit on, on her cult um, before we go into uh, your uh, going to Cupid, um, Demeter had one of the more popular uh, and long-lasting uh, mystery cults in the Greek pantheon uh, called the Eleusian Mysteries, uh, which is around that town, Eleusius, and uh, this story. Um, it was a nine, there was a 10-day festival uh, with a series of ceremonies and rituals based on the abduction and return of Persephone uh, held in the fall every year in Lucius. We don't know actually very much about it, um, unfortunately, because it was a mystery. Mm-hmm. And in Athens, uh, revealing the mystery could result in a death sentence. 
So um, just took their secret handshakes pretty seriously. That's right. Um, you know, thousands of people every year would go. Uh, men, women, uh, children could attend, rich, poor, people were enslaved, whatever. In fact, the only uh, rules on attending is that you had to speak Greek. You didn't have to be Greek, but you had to speak Greek because they didn't have the little, little translator uh, cassettes that they have no. in museums now. So little headsets were not not quite uh, up to snuff just yet. No, no. So you had to. You couldn't just keep asking, "What? What did?" <laughs> or speak loudly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. slow down. <laughs> um, and you could have not have committed murder. Okay. So those are those are the two rules. Um, similar to our uh, immigration policy, if you think about it, but that's it's probably not a matter. No, probably not. Not right. Um, in the last, yeah, so it lasted for 10 days and then uh, reached its grand finale of uh, one thing that we is rumored at least is the grand finale was cutting a single stalk of grain mm. silently. So dramatic, uh, yeah, it's very dramatic. Uh, one, one assumes. So that's uh, that's what I have on Demeter. Quite the tales, my friend. Quite a lot of secrets, a lot of lies, but yet bargains. And in the end, you know, those of us who live in in climates like uh, the Northeast and the Midwest, we appreciate our seasons. There's a delicate snowfall yeah. coming down right now, the first that we've had all year, and uh, all thanks to that grand bargain. So yeah, there you go. Very nice, good. Well, let's uh, let's take a break there before we get into our next segment, which is Cupid. Excellent. Stay tuned for that. And we're back with the next segment of second episode, God versus God. We heard Andrew talk about Demeter, the goddess of the harvest, and I'll take us to, to Cupid, uh, a familiar character for many of us, and yet uh, plenty of stories we may not know about. So we'll share some of those in this segment to see how Cupid measures up to forward, the yeah. aforementioned goddess. Yes. So Cupid, of course, the god of, of desire, attraction, affection, but most importantly, erotic love. Now, Cupid, of course, is the Roman tradition. The Greek counterpart is Eros, hence erotic. And that distinction is important uh, because there are several varieties of love that they talk about in, in those times. The erotic proportion, proportion is considered uncontrollable lust. It's a desire for something as opposed to a passion, which is more of a constructive thing. It's an eager interest, at least to something positive. But the erotic version is much more of the lusty variety, just needing something uncontrollably, even if you already have it, needing more of it. Uh, so that's where Cupid comes from. Right. We, we envision him as, at first in first form, this, this sort of slender youth. He's got wings. But before long, he takes on the form that is more familiar to us, which is that sort of chubby young boy, typically naked, sometimes with a loincloth, but always a little bit, a little bit overweight and quite young. And I know what you're probably thinking. What is it we could possibly link, make a connection between an overweight toddler and erotic love? Well, it's symbolism, of course, because he's got wings in, in, you know, because lovers are often flighty and they change their minds. So the flightiness of love is represented in those wings. And he is boyish because love is irrational, which at least my experience tells me young boys most certainly are. Right. So they have symbolic meaning to each of those of those representations. Uh, every now and then, Cupid also is shown as being blindfolded. And of course, we think that might be because love is blind. 
Uh, that is the idea, but not in the sense of being sightless. It's the sense that love is from somewhere deeper than just the eyes, which brings us to one of my favorite Shakespeare quotes from Midsummer Night's Dream. Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind, and therefore is winged Cupid painted blind. So hence, occasionally, the blindfold. But of course, it's the weapon of choice that we associate with Cupid the most. It is the bow and arrow that represents his key source of power. And of course, anyone shot by Cupid's arrow is suddenly filled with uncontrollable desire. And when I say anyone, I mean that. This sort of lust archery technique uh, can be applied to to mortals or deities alike. In fact, he even is known, you mentioned before a, a story of him shooting Zeus. There's another instance where he shoots Zeus himself, the god of gods, to make him fall in love with Europa, which ultimately leads him turning into a bull. We'll probably get to that story at some point later yep. in the season, but uh, nobody's off limits when it comes to right. Cupid's arrows. It can be anybody. And in art, we often see Cupid amusing himself. He's a, he's a young boy of leisure. He's, he's playing with a hoop, throwing darts, catching a butterfly, playing a horn. Similar, I imagine, to sort of the weekend activities that you and I would enjoy. Yes. We've already got a good kinship with uh, the young fella. Uh, As for his origin stories, similar to much of of mythology, there are differing opinions on where Cupid came from. There are early traditions that have him as one of those primordial gods who just came into existence asexually, sprang forth out of nowhere, the kind of original Big Bang theory. Uh, But later on in in Latin literature, he's, he's... agreed upon to be the son, as you mentioned earlier, of Venus, of course, the goddess of love and beauty. Often there is no reference to a father. uh, So she's sort of portrayed as a single mother. Now, Seneca, the famous Roman Stoic philosopher, he claimed that Cupid's father is Vulcan, since he was Venus's husband at the time of his birth. But of course, most accounts agree Cupid is in fact the affair of the, or the product of the affair between Venus and Mars, the god of war. Right. which of course is a callback to episode one, the affair, the heated affair, which you described so aptly right. in the first episode. So from that relationship, that affair came Cupid himself. And so those are, you know, the, the, those are considered to be his, his agreed upon parents. So you've got, of course, Venus, the goddess of love, Mars, the god of war, love and war coming together. It's a fitting parentage. It's a, it's a great combination. Right. And even the sort of sense of him having two different birth stories is kind of meaningful in its way because Cupid is both considered primordial and he is conceived in, shall we say, the old fashioned way. So he's sort of both, he represents both heavenly and earthly love at the same time. Um, and if I may, a personal note, the the power of, of this combination of two very different types of folks really resonates with me because of my own past history and my grandparents. On one side, you've got a Catholic couple who emigrated from Ireland in the 20s, became a cop and a homemaker with four children on the south side of Chicago. Uh-huh. On the other, a Catholic couple who emigrated from Ireland in the 1920s became a cop and a homemaker with four children on the north side of Chicago. So ah, their son yeah. and daughter met. Both. The rest is history. All right. So they, I am span, the, they, they were able to span that, that divide. That's right. North so making, making me the, the ultimate poster child for diversity. But, uh, but I digress. Now, important to point out, Cupid is often a side character. He's a minor character who sets the plot in motion. There aren't very many stories where he's the star. But there is one, which which I'll I'll spend a a chunk of my time talking about. And he's the star of the story of Cupid and Psyche. Uh, Really is is sort of the main, his his, his time to shine as the lead character of the story. Uh, So it begins with a king who's got three daughters. Psyche is the youngest of the three. 
And the other two daughters, you know, they're fine. But the youngest of them, Psyche, far surpasses them all. It's by far the most beautiful. She is seen as, even though she's a mere mortal, she's seen as a goddess. And people say, wow, even Venus herself could not equal her beauty. So everyone's so impressed, they end up spending all of their attention on her and they stop worshiping Venus. So Venus's temples become neglected. The altars fall to ash. Yeah, her favorite towns are in ruins. Well, you know how this goes. Once a god stops being worshipped, they're not going to be happy about it. And so needless to say, Venus is not pleased and she finds a way to exact her revenge. So she does similar to what you described in the story earlier. She goes to her loyal son, good old Cupid, says, Cupid, help me out. I want you to use your powers and make that hussy fall in love with the world's most vile and despicable creature. And Cupid says, hey, yeah. anything you're not, grab your arrows. I'm, I'm on my way. Just point her out and I'll get it done. So Venus points out Psyche and he's speechless. As soon as he sees, as soon as Cupid sees Psyche, he, it's as though one of his own arrows has been shot into his heart. He's immediately struck, impossibly in love at the sight of Psyche. So he just kind of backs away and heads out, out of the room. And Venus assumes he's a loyal son. He's on the case. He's going to take care of this. But uh, Cupid's in a bit of a pinch because uh, the one he needs to cast this spell upon to fall in love with this vile creature is in fact captured his own heart. So mm-hmm. down on earth, something, something very different happens. Not only does Psyche fail to fall in love with some vile creature, she falls in love with no one. I mean, men encounter her, they look, they, they worship her beauty, but they walk away and ultimately all marry somebody else. She is essentially out of everybody's league. So, of course, her older sisters, they both get married, right. married to two other kings, in fact. But old Psyche never does. And her parents, understandably, are, are disturbed by this. So her father undertakes a drastic measure. He says, all right, we're going to go to the Oracle of Delphi, the Oracle of Apollo, of course, to get the gods' advice on how to find Psyche a good husband. Now, yeah, they, they didn't have any websites to go to. They did not. The, the closest you could do to look this up would be to go to the Oracle of Delphi. So that okay. was the technique. Uh, and of course, the rule there is whatever the Oracle tells you, you have to do. You know, this is right. not just sort of advice. This is essentially a directive from the divine. So okay. I should point out the as he goes to the Oracle, Cupid has gone to Apollo in advance of, hey, fills him in on the whole story. He says, I need you to help me out and kind of fix things a little bit so it ends up well for me. Paula okay. says, I got you, man. God to God, no problem. So he goes to the Oracle and doing Cupid a solid, Apollo tells Psyche's father, all right, here's what you got to do to find love for your daughter. You got to dress her in mourning clothes, take her to the top of a mountain and leave her there alone. Dad's like, okay. He says, but there, says the Oracle, she will meet her destined husband. It will be a winged and fearful serpent, stronger than the gods themselves. And that serpent will take her and make her his wife. And Psyche's dad is, is understandably uh, I had in mind. No, kind of crushed by this news. This is, this is not great. But the God has spoken and you got to do what he says. So dad kind of shrugs, takes Psyche, puts her in all black, takes her to the top of the mountain and leaves her there to be reportedly met by this, this serpent husband. I mean, she's there. She waits by herself in terror and, and waits for the worst to happen. Um, but suddenly a soft breeze carries her away, floats her away to a nice peaceful meadow where she dozes off and ultimately wakes up in front of a mansion that is this beautiful spread built as if for a god. And yet there's nobody there. It's deserted. So she makes her way to the front door and hears these voices speaking to her. And they say, come on in, enter, have no fear. 
take a bath. We'll have a banquet prepared for you. We are your servants. We're ready to do anything you desire. And she's thinking, okay, this is getting better. So she does what the servants have told her. She has a great bath, beautiful banquet. There's music. There's a choir singing. It's lovely. So these never... are like little the servants, little like teapots and I, clocks. There is a bit of foreshadowing here. So yes, I like where you're going with that. But <laughs> they, they in fact implore her to dare I say be their guest. Okay. So she does. She's enjoying herself, enjoying the music, but she never sees anybody. Just hears the voices of these servants, and then finally, at last. After wondering where her husband might be, hears that voice of her husband-to-be. Doesn't see him, but just hears that voice, and all of her sense of fear leaves her. He's really sweet. He's really kind. And even without seeing him, she can tell, this guy is no monster. This is the husband that I've longed for for all these years. It's a little weird that I can't see him, but at least by his voice, I can tell he's, he's a good guy. So she's enjoying herself. They're enjoying themselves together. And then one night, the voice speaks to her and says, look, Psyche, your sister's they're going to come back. They're coming back to the place that you, that your family left you where you disappeared. They're going to weep for you and wail, but I can't let you have them see you. Otherwise you're going to be in great sorrow to me. You're going to ruin yourself. It's not going to be good. And she says, yeah, I don't want to do that, but I really miss him. And, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't have a great goodbye to him. So, and she's in tears and her husband finally kind of relents and says, all right, do what you will, but just know that you are seeking your own destruction. Just don't let them persuade you to try to see me or else we will be separated forever, says the husband. And Psychic says, of course not. I'd never do that. I'd rather die a hundred times. We're having such a nice time together. You got it. So the sisters arrive. They're thrilled to see that she's alive. Happiness, tears, joy. The wind comes down, blows them to the palace. And and then once they see this place, this beautiful palace is built for a god. Once they hear the music, see the banquet, they suddenly, the sisters do become bitter and jealous. Like, oh, the younger sister has been the pretty one the whole time. Now she's got this great pad. And of course, their rational next question is, so where is this this husband of yours? I'd love to meet him. And Psyche, you know, keeps her word and says, oh, he's he's on a hunting expedition. He's not on business. Not on business. He's not taking a business trip. So they say, okay, we'll take off, but uh, this will not be the last you see of us. So the sisters leave and begin plotting how to work out their, their jealous rage at how well her sister's life has turned out. So she's back at home. The husband appears just as a voice still and says, I got to warn you one more time. You can't see them and you can't have them see me. And she says, if I'm not able to see you or to see them, it's just not fair. How can I be happy that way? And so again, the husband's like, okay, fair enough. I'll yield again this one time. And he goes away. The sisters come back. And the sisters tell Psyche, you know, since we've been here last time, we learned that your husband isn't really a man. He's a winged serpent that the Oracle said he would be. And he might be really nice to you right now. But one of these nights, he's going to turn on you and devour you because he's a monster. And Psyche's understandably very upset by this. You know, why Why won't he let me see him? Something must be wrong. Something's off. It's a bit suspicious. It's more more than a bit suspicious. Yeah. So she asked her sisters, what's your advice? What? What should I do? And of course, they've been plotting. They've got the advice ready to go. They say, all right, it's very simple. You need to hide a knife and a lamp by your bed. Now, wait for your husband to fall asleep. When he does, you go to his bed, you bring both of them, grab the knife, you light the lamp. And then once you see this frightful being that your husband really is, be ready to plunge that knife right into him because he's, he's monstrous. He'll be, you kill him before he kills you. And we'll be there nearby to carry you away afterward. So all day long, Psyche is, is understandably really torn. Like on one hand, 
he's my dear husband. No, he's a terrible serpent monster. I got to kill him. No, I shouldn't. And she's just shaking with, with, with uncertainty. And ultimately, you know, she knows her sister's best and says, I'm going to take their advice and reluctantly waits for him to fall asleep, she grabs the knife, tiptoes to the bed, and finally lights the lamp and has a look. Then in fact, her husband is not a monster, but the sweetest and fairest of all creatures. He's a godlike even. He's, he's Cupid. Right. And she's devastated by this. She is shamed at this lack of faith that she has. She falls to her knees. And because her hands are so unsteady, she spills hot oil from the lamp on her husband's shoulder. And of course, the hot oil wakes up Cupid. He sees the light. He knows that she's been faithless. And he flees without a word. And she's, of course, devastated. She rushes after him, hears his voice and says, all right. And her husband explains that he is, in fact, Cupid, the god of love and no monster of any kind. And he says, love cannot live where there is no trust. And then he flies away. And then Psyche is just, again, crushed. I was married to the god of love. I couldn't keep my faith in him. So I will spend the rest of my life searching for him. Even if he has no more love for me, I can show him how much I have for him. So she just dedicates herself to finding wow. this husband again after that show of faithlessness. So Cupid is, is burned up by the oil. So he goes back to his mother's place, to Venus's place, to take care of the wound. And understandably, once she hears that it was Psyche that Cupid had chosen, rather than achieve his mission of, of right. as originally was planned, uh, she leaves him alone angrily, lets him just lets him sweat it out, lets him be in, be in pain for a while, and decides to show psyche what it's like to anger a goddess like venus now psyche is upset she's she's she wants to, to to make it good she tries praying she tries pleading with other gods to take her side but similar to your story nobody wants to make an enemy out of venus so like no right. you you kind of made this happen so you're on your own um so she gives up and then just says i'm going to suck it up i'm going to go to venus i'm going to offer her myself as a servant and who knows maybe when i go to her place maybe cupid will be there too yeah maybe he's staying with his mom who we'll see so she arrives and Venus is just, is just laughs at her out of pity, just cackles and says, well, you nearly burned my son to death, which is an exaggeration because of course, Cupid is a God and you, you cannot yeah. burn him to death. But she says, how could you have done this? Only diligent and painful service can possibly redeem you from the actions that you've taken. And Psyche says, all right, that's fine. Let, let's hear him. Give, give me the tasks. And if we had a little more time, we'd go into more depth on these tasks. They go in some very interesting directions, but for our purposes here, Three tasks, they involve sorting seeds, getting the fleece of sheep, getting water from the sticks. And in all these cases, she's able to, through the help of friendly animals, um, ants, sheep, and an eagle, is yeah. able to succeed in all these otherwise impossible tasks. And so Venus is, is sort of frustrated because every time she gives her one of these tasks, she's certain that-, that, that she's, not supposed to, she's not supposed to be able to do these. No, she's supposed to just sort of be this, this, this you know, pretty young thing, but she in, in, in fact ends up being quite able. So- meets the requirements of all three of the tasks. So Venus says, all right, I'll give you one more. Go to the underworld and ask Proserpine, who is a somewhat minor goddess, but one of these underworld goddesses known for her beauty, at least the beauty of, of that neighborhood down in, mm -hmm. in Hades. Ask Proserpine to fill a box with some of her beauty and then bring it back to me. And Psyche says, I'm not sure how that works, but okay, if that's the last thing I got to right. do to make good, I'm going to do it. So Psyche goes to the underworld, gets past the, the, you know, the gates, goes across the river sticks, all the stuff you got to do to get through there, and then gets in front of Proserpine, asks for the box of beauty, and Proserpine says, well, since it's for Venus, okay, I will, I will give it to you. So she takes some of her beauty, puts it in a box, gives it to Psyche. 
So Psyche's feeling pretty good. She's got the box of beauty. She's coming back from the underworld and thinks, all right, I'm in the final, final stages of getting my man back. But she's also thinking, I'm a little curious what's in this box. <laughs> what does the box of beauty even look like? She's like, and I've been through a lot. So my looks have probably faded a bit. So if I'm going to meet Cupid again, I, I'm going to need all the beauty I can get. So maybe I can look in this box and just grab a little of the beauty out of it. So she can't resist the temptation, opens the box, and there's nothing in there. But what does sort of waft out immediately puts her into a heavy sleep. And she is passed out beyond control. So at this point, Cupid finally steps in. He's healed from his wounds. He's longing for Psyche. Of course, he's still madly in love. And you can knock love down, but you can't knock him out, right? So he finds Psyche, he wipes the sleep from her eyes, puts everything back in the box. And then he takes out his bow and arrow and he wakes her up with just a, just a little prick of it. Not much, just a little, little poke with his arrow and scolds her a little bit, gives her a little lesson on maybe you shouldn't have done that. But he says, go back to my mom. If you go back to Venus now, bring her the box, everything will be okay. And that's great news for her. So she heads back to Venus in order to, to fulfill that final task. And while she's heading back, Cupid flies to Olympus, goes to the boss himself, goes to Zeus to get final approval on making this all right. And Zeus is thinking, you know, you've messed with me before. You've made me turn into, you made me turn into a bull. You've turned me into a swan. You've, you've had a lot of shenanigans, young Cupid. He says, but I can't say no to you. I can't, can't say no to the power of love. So Zeus calls for a full assembly of the gods. He has a marriage feast. Cupid and Psyche are formally married. Wow. And she is able to, Psyche is able to drink the ambrosia of immortality. So this was the ambrosia similar to the goddess breath or the whatever weird fire treatment you mentioned earlier. <laughs> This was an easy yeah, that's for baby, babies can't for that's, that's right. the whole thing. So the ambrosia uh, makes Psyche a goddess. And so at this point, at the, after the wedding, even Venus is totally fine with the situation since her new daughter-in-law is now a goddess. So now she approves of the relationship. Um, more importantly, though, Venus is okay with it because when she's in, in Olympus and taking care of her husband and perhaps her children, she won't be back on earth turning all the men's heads, which means, uh -huh. of course... They won't be distracted from worshiping herself, Venus, which is what got us into all this mess. So a happy ending for all involved. The God of love is reunited with psyche, which means soul. So the union of love and soul is one that can never be broken. And that is, that's the tale of, of Cupid and psyche. It's an epic, uh, as you yeah. alluded to, and, and before it, it becomes the inspiration for the classic tale of beauty and the beast, taking a few liberties with the prince and the, and the spells, but ultimately right. it influences that story. Um, so that's the core of, of where Cupid comes from. There are some minor stories. A, a quick one is, I think, my favorite, uh, the story of Cupid and the bees. So as a child, as you know, Cupid, Cupid often is, he's stealing honey from, from bees, being you know, a mischievous little yeah. fellow. And in the process, he is stung by the bees. So he runs to his mother, to Venus, and complains. He's, how is it fair that such a small creature as a bee should cause such painful wounds? And Venus laughs at the poetic justice. Says, you too are pretty small, my son, and yet you deliver the sting of love. Right. And that's the whole story. But it cracks me up because <laughs> poor little Cupid's like, mom, that really hurt. <laughs> ah, but mom, it hurts. Son, you have learned irony. Which <laughs> gives him no joy at all. Now, that is the whole story. But again, on a quick personal note, I do have to point out when I was in second grade, uh, I was too in Catholic school and I was stung by a bee and the bee okay. flew up my pant leg and stung me in the upper thigh. I don't think I've ever told you the story. I mean, oh, that's I a formative this. one of my youth. So 
right in the upper thigh, just, you know, kind of between the knee and the groin. Um, because it was a Catholic school and there wasn't really a nurse, I had to go to the principal who was Sister Rosalita, who was a probably 65-year-old nun. And in order for her to examine the beast thing, I had to drop my pants in front of this nun. Um, so the first time anybody outside of my upbringing had ever seen me in my underwear was a, a 65-year-old nun, which is not really the formative erotic <laughs> experience that anybody wants. But yeah. again, something about Cupid and the bees brings me back to those to that story. days. Yeah, yeah. So- Sister Rosalita. Sister Rosalita, uh, rest her soul. I'm imagining she's no longer with us, but who knows? Maybe she <laughs> has received the ambrosia of immortality. Yeah. Uh, so later on, Cupid gets a bit of a darker reputation, you know, typical to the march of history. Medieval times come along and, and the sort of Christian forces want to make something bad out of erotic love. So the time of Charlemagne, they see Cupid, they kind of reframe him as being seductive and malicious. They mm-hmm. say Cupid exploits the desire of people to bring them into the world of vice. They say his quiver is his, his depraved mind, his, his bow is trickery, his arrows are poison. It's appropriate that he's naked because he shouldn't conceal his deception and his evil. And so he becomes known in those days, in those medieval days, as the demon of fornication wow. rather than the god of love, which is on one hand a pretty great nickname in the context <laughs> of heavy metal or adult film or heaven forbid both of those things in combination. So thankfully, his reputation softens. He, he's known Cupid as the, the puto in Italian and Renaissance art. We know him in those chubby winged cherubs that we see in so many paintings, playing their little harps with their wings. Uh, there's a very famous provocative Caravaggio painting called Love Conquers All, where Cupid is brazenly naked and he's trampling on the symbols of culture representing music, architecture, and scholarship. Like, hey, I'm love, man. Take that. Take oh. Anything, nothing's more important than love. So he's brazenly overcoming all those uh, intellectual pursuits in favor of his erotic love. But of course, we know him most uh, probably in this day and age from Valentine's Day. Now, Valentine, of course, the third century Christian martyr um, known for giving aid to persecuted Christians. So one thing I did not know is that in those days, Roman soldiers were not allowed to marry since the emperor, Claudius II, believed that married men could not make good soldiers that would move their focus away from the mission at hand. But Valentine really felt for him, did this, this Valentine the priest. So he would, he would cut little hearts from parchment and he would give them to the soldiers and remind them, even though you can't get married, God's love is with you. And he wore this purple amethyst ring that had the image of Cupid on it because that was the symbol of love that was legal at the time of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And over time, soldiers would see that and they would know it was code. And Valentine would, in fact, perform marriage for them in secret. Oh. So against the wishes of the emperor, he was able to marry them in secret and allow them to, to seal their love uh, with their, their wives. So that's where we get the image of the heart. That's where we get the amethyst, the birthstone of February. And of course, the feast day of Valentine on February 14th gives us hearts, Cupid, and overpriced chocolate, <laughs> impossible dinner reservations, yes. ritualized card exchanging. As a happy postscript, Emperor Claudius II, uh, after his army defeated the Goths, he eventually reversed his stance in, on, on marriage okay. and not, not only said, guys, you can get married now, but he says that was after that victory, you should each take two or three wives. So <laughs> don't, don't stop at one. So indeed love like the painting conquers all, unless you are the goths, in which case you were conquered. So in retrospect, you know, Cupid remains a minor character. He's never a lead. He's always second fiddle. Um, his biggest influence, of course, as we mentioned, the Beauty and the Beast, the woman with the heart of gold, the servants, the banquets, and the unseen beast who's really a prince. 
in pop culture, there's of course the dating site, okay, Cupid, which I think right. still exists. Uh, I dallied in a little bit in my bachelor days in 2007. All right. Um, I would say Cupid's arrow delivered very little, uh, <laughs> <in that instance. laughs> did not, um, not find the mark, did not hit his mark. Um, but not for lack of trying, uh, there's a great song called Cupid by Sam Cooke. Lovely song. I would share it and play it if we had the music budget to support that licensing. Uh, but for now, certainly look up. Cupid, draw back your bow, let your arrow go. Straight to my lover's heart for me. It's beautiful. Apart from that, not a ton of appearance and culture. Uh, you know, a naked, obese toddler with a weapon <laughs> apparently is not <laughs> a type of main character for modern entertainment. But of course, in the grand scheme of legacy, Erotic love remains with us. And you can only imagine what a world without love would be. I mean, think about nothing but anger and grievance, probably terrible music. Right. Almost like yeah. every like day. Like Twitter. Is- <laughs> exactly. Or, or January 6th, one right. of the two. Yeah. yeah. So for the lucky among us, uh, Cupid's cause of erotic love still remains, we hope. It's alive and well. And we, we all have that sneaky little chubby fella to thank for it. There is the tale of Cupid to wrap up our second segment. So with that, let us take a break. Let us regather our wits and prepare to cast Demeter and Cupid against each other in our categories to determine who will be the victor in God versus God. Let's do it. And we are back for our six categories. For those of you joining us anew, we have six categories in which both of our gods will go against each other. Andrew will explain the categories and will decide which of our two contestants is worthy of the golden apple. Ultimately, at the end of the season, we will then decide who among all those winners deserves to be the winner of the golden goat. Right. All something to build towards. So Andrew, take us through our first category, if you please. Right. Uh, first category is immortal combat. Yes. Uh, which is simple uh, schoolyard question of who would win in a physical confrontation, you know, and I think uh, here uh, we're really doing some, some of the Lord's work because (laughs) how many, how many times have there been fisticuffs or or (laughs) harsh words developed over who would win between Demeter and Cupid in a physical confrontation one-on-one? It's, it's a question that that does not have an answer, but we're about to give one. Yes. (laughs) Yes. It's, it gets asked all the time. uh, (laughs) Philosophers. (laughs) Um, economists so uh pros on demeter um she can turn giant as we saw um she can stop crops from growing which maybe is a little more of a long-term strategy that's true although remember she's fighting a baby essentially so (laughs) So maybe doesn't eat that much it wouldn't take long to to she doesn't need that much yeah uh she rides a chariot uh pulled by dragons Mm -hmm. um they so very fly. speedy can get very very far very fast. Yeah, we didn't hear anything about them breathing, but being fire breathing dragon. Uh, so she's often pictured. I mentioned this, uh, carrying a torch. Mm. Uh, this from her search for her daughter, or a scythe, um, just you know to reap grain or perhaps do some some serious damage. To do her. some we- weaponry. Yeah, yeah. Um, cons. She, you know, there's. There's not a lot about her really getting into fights. She's not, that's not her, her main thing. Uh, in the Titanomachy, uh, you know, which was that big battle at the beginning, she she appears to have only had a minor role. Um, there's no literary sources that really talk about her fighting, right. but 
there were some vases, uh, ancient vases that depicted her with a sword or a spear along with the other Olympians. So there were some potters mm. at one point mm -hmm. uh, who thought she, she might've uh, given it a go. Uh, so that's, that's her. Um, so she at least had the, the, the sort of fighting respect of the potter community at the time. Yes. Yeah. Yes. There were, there was some, some, some among the potter community <laughs> who could picture yeah. in a pinch <laughs> that, that she would do some fighting. I could so, see that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think those are those are formidable. I think certainly being able to get that giant is is a big deal, especially when again fighting essentially a baby. Yeah. Uh, there, there is something about Cupid's lone weapon, and I didn't mention this earlier, but he does have two kinds of arrows. There's the golden arrow, which is what we know him for, where it, yeah. you're struck with that, it's sharp, and then you get your insatiable, uncontrollable traction. He also has dull lead arrows, which okay. if you're shot with one of those, you are attracted to get the heck out of there. So they actually just cause you to flee. Now those don't really come uh -huh. up in many stories, but he does have that in his quiver if he needs it. That so said, the, you know, in terms of combat, clearly his use of that weaponry is is not is for, for again. He's more of a lover than a fighter. Yeah. He's there to uh, to per persuade people to the art of love, uh, or in some cases to to leave town. Uh, something tells me, you know, as a side character who's really never had any kind of tradition of, of, of warfare apart from these sort of more prankish like right. escapades. He's a trickster. He's yeah. Ooh. I mean, very, yeah, very, very sneaky, uh, mischievous, uh, but ultimately not the kind of fighter I think who could take on somebody uh, who can stand the height of the heavens. Right. Well, I think when you, you know, think about a maternal figure against a baby, you know, if she starts counting, that's it's all over. <laughs> it's all over. One. He's out. Two. That's it. <laughs> That's it. That's very good. Yes. Yeah. So I, I think uh, my vote has to go to Demeter on this one. I think yeah. uh, Cupid just not not a warrior type, and uh, and given both her patience. Uh, and her immense size and maternal right. capabilities. I think that's right. that's a that's an easy one. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, the strategy. You know, he has that that power, but I don't know that he would be able to actually use it in a way that would be effective in, in a right. fight. So that's I think I, so. I think we're we're both going to go uh, with uh, Demeter for Immortal Combat for round one. All right. So curriculum deity, mm -hmm. um, and this is a bit of a split question again. Uh, it's who would you rather be? Uh, who would you rather follow? Um, you know, as as a as a divine being. Uh, so Demeter is uh, you know depicted as a blonde woman in her prime, um, kind of a honeyed wheat colored hair. Mm. You know, uh, go along with the theme. She's got a theme going. <laughs> That's right. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, uh, she had the, just the one home in mm. in Olympus, uh, so I think they, they live in the same community. She has a chariot pulled by dragons. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a pretty sweet also, ride. Yeah, yeah. She also has a little bit of an entourage. Mm. Uh, her entourage is maybe a little different than the one we talked about with Mars. Mars is you know surrounded by the personifications of fear, panic, anger, and discord. <laughs> right. Yes. It's just not a. Uh, not make it for a lot of great dinner parties. No. Uh, Although but, as one who could really make a dinner party happen for somebody else, she's got yeah. that going for. Her. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's Mars. Her, her, her uh, entourage, uh, uh, one of the people in her entourage is a, a hero uh, 
agricultural hero named Triptolemus, hmm. uh, who she invested with divine powers and his own dragon pulled chariot hmm. uh, to go spread grain cultivation around <laughs> the Mediterranean. So uh, kind of a Kind of a, a Johnny Barley seed. Yeah, I was gonna say, so getting some shades of Dionysus, spreading the grapes uh, as his own. Uh, yeah, old Johnny Appleseed version. Very nice. Yeah, and Persephone and, and uh, some of her other kids. So you know, not not too bad. Um, yeah. uh, what? So what? How's how's Cupid stacking up? You know, in? it's a tough one. I think in terms of who I'd rather be, I, I do admire that he kind of he has a good time. He 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 is really pursuing his own enjoyment for the most of the time, it, occasionally getting an order from his mother, but even as we, we've heard, sometimes defying that. Uh, he lives a very happy-go-lucky life. He's all about love, which which is a great way to wake up in the morning. Um, but also he's kind of a lone wolf. He doesn't really, you don't hear the stories of him having uh, an entourage. Right. You know, the most we have of him having a home is the end of that story with Psyche, where presumably he moves up to the heavens to, again, essentially just live with his mom. In, right. in, in the apartment next door, everybody loves Raymond style and maybe have a family where she's still keeping a watchful eye over them. Um, it's still a good place to be. And he still found a love of his life, but it's, that's, that's really the only big story we hear about his adult life. Um, and in terms of who you'd rather follow, I mean, the, the thing about Cupid is he, he doesn't have much of a tale, if any, of, of a, any sense of worship, you know, as a side right. character, he didn't really have temples. He didn't really have mysteries or traditions he was just kind of the guy floating around the edges making mischief. So uh, not much of a of a community to be had in, in right. serving a god like Cupid. In, in some ways, you could almost say he has more of a following now than he did. Well, that's a great then. point. In fact, yeah, I guess as the years go by, when you think about the Renaissance depictions, when you think about the the you know romantic industrial complex that is Valentine's Day, <laughs> uh, he he has quite the uh, quite the following. So yeah. Um, yeah, I think given that, uh, again, my my gut goes to Demeter. I think between the entourage, the sweet pad, the control of the seasons as as something you'd want to be able to do, um, yeah, I think I think she'd get my vote yeah. on that one. Yeah, for 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 uh, I, I agree with you for for being. And then uh, one more thing on like kind of you know as the followers of, of her. Uh, yeah. So the, I mentioned the Illusion uh, mysteries. Um, you know, part of it had had to do perhaps with conquering death. Uh, or at least getting a better deal in the underworld, <laughs> yes. um, you know, which maybe was part of the deal with having Persephone go down there. It's like, yep. well, look after my people. Yeah. Um, in uh, her mysteries, I talk about the pigs had covered up the trail. So uh, because of that, pigs were often sacrificed at, at her events. So, um, you know, a good barbecue. Oh, that's pretty go. good. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, you get, that's, you get that's, some good eats and everything. Yeah. And pig, very nice. yeah I get a pig roast. Um, and as, as the sort of barley mother, one would think that the quality of beer would probably be pretty high. Yeah. It's interesting. They never really talk about uh, that though, but it does show her, there are a lot of uh, Renaissance type paintings uh, with Ceres and, and Bacchus kind of hanging out. Uh, that feels they, like a pretty they, good match. Yeah, they, they they spent some time. I think that they just didn't. The, the Romans and and the um, Greeks didn't go in for the beer, so that that didn't didn't register. No, they were uh, leaving that for them. the Egyptians, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's so, right. Um, and here's a so Cicero said about the Elysian mysteries, which is one of the um, says for among the many excellent and indeed divine institutions which Athens has brought forth, none, in my opinion 
are better than those mysteries, for they are the means brought out our barbarous and savage mode of life and into an educated and refined state of civilization. Wow. So that's pretty good. And and it's certainly at odds with with old Cupid just trampling on, <laughs> on learning and music and yes, art. And saying, exactly. It's not erotic love. I don't want to hear about it. Right. Yeah. Right. That's impressive. All right. So uh, I'm going to go for that for uh, curriculum deity. We're, we're both saying. I think uh, we're both saying Demeter on that one. Yeah. So okay. Two nothing. All right. All right. Good God. Good God. Uh, and. Uh, you want to go first on this one? Yeah. So I, I think in this case, you, you know, because Cupid is, is, is a bit of a lightly sketched character, he uh, he's seen, again, mischievous, leisurely, a little sneaky. His heart, forgive the pun, appears to be in the right place. He's, he's doing this because either his mother has told him to or because he's, he definitely he wants to create a positive attraction for, for those who need love. So he has, I think, a pretty good character there. Obviously, those, you know, Charlemagne era sort of medieval Christians who wanted to turn that into something about more lust and, you know, in the sense right. of being destructive. Um, I, I don't buy that as much. I think based on, on the stories we hear about him, he was, he was doing it for the right, the right reasons. Uh, even though that was not always convenient right. uh, to the subjects involved, it was still uh, what they needed to have. So, so, so occasionally it was kind of mis- mischievous ends though. I would it's true. It's true. But I think it, my reading just, of it is that he was always doing it because he was observing a couple that really needed to be together anyway. Okay. And so he found a way to make that happen through his bow and arrow. He didn't, at least in the stories that, that I've absorbed, he hasn't, he, he seems like he's used those powers largely for good, you know? So okay. that's, that's an impressive part of, of, I think his character yet. I think he's also clearly has his flaws in the sense that you know, in, in inability to carry out the order from his mother to with, with psyche, uh, he is even susceptible himself to his greatest powers. So I think there is a, there's a, there's a character plus for him in the sense that he's not just wielding this power to everybody else. He too has a heart and will be susceptible to it and will find love against all odds as though mm-hmm. struck by his own arrow. And the fact that even when it was time to wake up his soon to be wife, Rather than really sling her with a big old golden arrow and seal the deal, he just you know, get a nice little light prick just to wake her up and, and okay. a little bit of a light scolding. But I think that shows pretty good character. So I, I, I speak highly of Cupid for that. And, and that plus he's clearly about leisure and having a good time and about enjoying life through life. Right. So hats off to him for that. All right. So we have, we have a, an interesting contrast to what we had last week. Um, yes. So Demeter, uh, in addition to, you know, providing food and, and such, she was known as a lawgiver hmm. um, hmm. because there was a connection made between agriculture and civilization. Sure. Um, in She was known as the protector of the plebes who were the, the non-aristocracy uh, mm-hmm. in Rome. Um, and her temple served as a records hall and a treasury and uh, kind of a minor law court, you know, probably, okay. probably for, uh, you know, disputes over uh, land boundaries or whatever. Chariot parking and such. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we had this, is this mulberry bush that mine is that on your plot? You know, those kind of things. Um, you know, we saw with the uh, Aristicthon story that, uh, you know, she let the assistants go. She gave him another chance and, you yeah. know, uh, pull back now. Um, and, and uh, I will only unleash my wrath uh, if you don't. And of course, he didn't. 
Um, you know, she was obviously a devoted mother, uh, which is all good. Uh, on the bad side, um, you know, there was a little bit of the starving the whole human race. Yeah, no, there's thing. there's that. Yeah, L- little <laughs> little collateral damage. <laughs> I would say um, so. That's that was maybe somewhat questionable. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that that was the weapon she had, so that's that's what she used. Um, you know, and I would say at the, her core, uh, you know, at her essence is uh, providing food and spreading agricultural wealth. You know, I, I think uh, for this part, um, I want to kind of take in for both uh, gods, you take into bit account the business they're in and the mm, service mm-hmm. they perform, which maybe we, right. we didn't do we kind of split that last time uh, between things. I think this is where it kind of goes is good God. So um, they both have uh, positives on that one. So, um, all right, where, where are you going to come down? On? I, you know, I think, I think I go with, with Cupid on this one. I think the, the spreading of love, I think the, the general good heartedness of his actions in contrast to uh, the worldwide famine that was the weapon <laughs> of choice for, for Demeter, for all those other positive qualities. And even if her heart was in the right place, just trying to find her daughter, uh, that's still a, a pretty brazen uh, act against humanity. So luckily it ended well. We only get that for a quarter of the year. Uh, right. But I think, uh, you know, with, with different sample sizes of activities, I think, uh, I think Cupid gets my vote for good God. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Um, you know, I think I'll go, I'll go with you on this one. I, I think, uh, you know, uh, I was maybe going to overlook the, the uh, threatened starvation because it didn't actually happen. Um <laughs> You know, a lot of other gods are are are, uh, are known to wipe out most of humanity for uh, various purposes. That's true. Uh, floods, fires, and such. But uh, yeah, I, I you know it's probably not necessarily a trait we want to encourage. Even threatening so, that, you know, it's still yeah. it's it's attempted. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you're still going to do a decent sentence for that in a court of law, provided yeah. you don't already control the courts. So right, fair point. All right, yeah. So all right, so uh, we're now two to one. Two to one. Very good. All right. Uh, this brings us on to iconography. Yes. And uh, here we're, we're going to talk about the um, the staying power, the impact of uh, that God, both uh, in their own time and in our own. Uh, yeah. Right. And uh, all the times in between. Um, so I'll, I'll go first on this one. Uh, so always like a good good planet um mm-hmm. series yes. has is a dwarf planet it's not officially <laughs> part of uh of uh, the solar system it's right. uh, in the asteroid belt asteroid belt uh between mars and jupiter mm-hmm. uh but you know it's out there dwarf planet it's not that's bad something. there's only so many that's right only so many to go around um you know last time i talked about Pausinius, who was a greek travel writer and he's going to come up uh, a lot throughout this uh season uh, he's kind of an ancient uh, Rick Steves um, mm. sort of figure, and he he has in the on Demer just a multitude of references to little shrines and uh, local veneration points mm-hmm. around her. So she's very mm-hmm. very popular uh, in in the Greek world back then. I've uh, talked you know a lot about uh, her mystery cult. Um, so you know back back in the day uh, she had you know, a very big following. Uh, when we go forward in time, uh, it's a little more spotty. Uh, 
on my Amazon lit search, uh, the best I could come up with was Dracula's Demeter Diaries, <laughs> which uh, Demeter is actually not a character, but the boat that brings Dracula uh, to England is named after her. So that's something. That's, All right. That's something. Uh, there is Demeter Perfume is a, mm. is a company uh, that makes uh, perfumes and their most popular uh, scent appears to be Thunderstorm. Mm. Demeter Thunderstorm, if you're interested. Um, <laughs> Put that on my list. And, but uh, the company also makes scented slime. Is that right? I mean, yeah, so scented slime. So I don't know that maybe cuts down their credibility as a, <laughs> as a high-end a perfume. Purveyor of fragrance, yeah. Yes, yeah. but... It shows uh, some range. Look at it that way. It does, it does, have, it does have range. So um, series is a character in Shakespeare's The Tempest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's only got about four lines or so in that. So not, not a major character. Um, I didn't really, you know, find a lot in the IMDB search uh, in terms of films uh, with either series or Demeter in them, but there is a movie called uh, series, the scarecrow, Mm. uh, which is an indie film currently looking for funding. Uh, Great. Perhaps we can, Transfer yeah. some of our God versus God wealth earnings. Right. Well, as an well, early spread, spread the word. Spread the word. Directed by Byron, uh, and I'll you know I'm actually might mention that a little bit more in the uh, 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 matinee idol yes. uh, section. Uh, so a couple more quick things. Uh, you know, there's a number of companies named after Demeter, uh, all of which make agricultural products. As you might expect, that would that would fit. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the Great Seal of North Carolina hmm. has a seal that uh, figures representing uh, Demeter and Persephone if, uh, as liberty and plenty, and liberty is Persephone and plenty is represented as Demeter. Great Seal of Vermont also has her, and I believe uh, the Seal of New Jersey. All North Carolina barbe- makes makes a lot of sense, especially considering the barbecue connection that fits yes. in really well. Yes, <laughs> they, yeah, that probably drew them in. Uh, <laughs> there's a statue of Ceres on top of the Chicago uh, Board of Trade building. I I know it well. It is uh, yeah. it is a block from my office. Yeah. Yes, yeah. there's some some you know has some new age cash these days okay. cachet, um, but. You know, outside of that, not, not a lot other. And then um, yeah, the names uh, for Demeter, Demetra, uh, Dimitri, Demi, um, Demi Moore. There you go. Uh, that's pretty good. Uh, but yeah, that's that, that's that's what I had. So uh, I know there's a lot on Cupid, but what do you kind of pull You know, there from? is. And I, and I fear I, I, I kind of unloaded a lot of these earlier in, in my excitement in the previous segment. I mean, you've got the Sam Cooke song, which I think is pretty great. You've got OK Cupid, while not successful for me, ultimately very successful for others. Uh, the lack of uh, the lack of temples, the lack of cults, you know, the, the, the word, you know, even, even his his Greek counterpart, Eros, of course, erotic. Uh, is a term that is familiar, um, but often has a bit of a less than savory connotation, let's say, right. even though we know in, in the formal definition, it really is about that sense of, of compulsion and attraction. Uh, it is now sort of boxed itself into a certain type of, let's say, film or, or literature uh, that we wouldn't call high end. So right. while there are products out there uh, that play with that, you know, clearly the, the, the 
the most important presence that he has in 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 terms of legacy is Valentine's Day. And you know, the between showing up in all the Renaissance paintings, between being such an omnipresent character in such a popular uh, feast day, at least in this country, um, that's where we see most of him. But as, as I mentioned, in pop culture, he's he's, he's fairly rare, uh, given that you know a chubby kid with a, a diaper and a weapon is is not exactly your key spokesperson. So, yeah. a few books out there, un, unremarkable. Uh, I, I, I guess in in the cinematic tradition, um, we don't see a lot directly related. However. Um, in a sense, indirectly, the entire tradition of the romantic comedy and all the <laughs> films that have sprung from that, that genre really does rely on some sort of inciting event that is Cupid-esque. So even if he's not appearing literally in those films, he is, uh, he is there in spirit, shall we say, and his legacy lives on through that. Well, um, you know, and I do think the motif of, you know, Cupid's bow, is, it does have a lot of uh, staying power. It does. Uh, I mean, it, he's a familiar character, but again, because of his uh, nature as more of a sideman and more of a uh, figure in the fringes, uh, less of an impact on pop culture, yeah. uh, apart from those sort of more practical and, and abstract associations. Right. right. All right. So this so is a hard um, one. Yeah, this is a tough one. I, you know, I think in in the day, you know, back in the day, uh, I think clearly Demeter was the more impactful uh beauty in people's lives and it's interesting when you look at those uh seals around i know i i believe those came into being and i'm not don't remember this exactly from my research you know around the end of the 19th century is when mm-hmm. it was popular to put make a seal you know put seals on stuff yeah yeah just uh, that is oh a state has a seal uh you know and uh people were more tied to agriculture back then it was more tied to uh your well-being as whereas we uh you know maybe are a little more disconnected from yes before uh, before uh factory farming let's say yeah yeah where our food comes from right uh so uh you know it's a little bit a little bit split but i feel like for me at least uh because the the larger impact at the time like that the illusion uh mysteries were going I think for like 1600 years mm. um, before the, uh, the Christians put a stop to it. Um, the church put a stop to it. So I, I would say um, I'm going to side with, with Demeter on, on this one. I, and I think it's a different philosophical interpretation of it, but I think given the current legacy, the lasting legacy of everything from Valentine's day to, uh, to the global eroticism market, um, I think I give Cupid the nod on this one. Uh, right. I think you're right. you're right that in her time, Demeter was a force with which to be reckoned. But I think, in terms of you know the arc of legacy, I think Cupid ends up on top. All right, all right. So it's our first uh, split. It is, draw. which means what we're, right. uh, we're coming Two, down to one it. one. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, so uh, this is, is going to be a, a big one then. It's huge. Uh, how's very important. All right. Um, so do you want to go first? Yeah. So Matinee Idol, who would make for a better movie? Now, I like to think on this in terms of both, you know, what we have seen and have not seen in movies. So clearly the key story of, of Psyche and Cupid as, as Beauty and the Beast is in a sense, a movie version of at least that part of his life. Um, very popular story, very long lasting, a lot of legs. Um, and yet the actual movie of Cupid's life 
uh, is is a bit of a strange thing to picture on the screen. And again, right. you've got a sort of leisurely young toddler fellow. Uh, he can fly with the little wings. He's got the adorable moments of, of piercing with his arrows of love. Um, he's mischievous. And there's all, there's all benefit to that. But you can't have a movie purely out of a side character. Now, his great story of obviously Beauty and the Beast has carried that. But ultimately, I also like to think in terms of casting. And I feel like this is a hard one to cast. I'm not familiar with a whole lot of sort of two, three-year-old uh, actors, performers. <laughs> the, the body of work just isn't there. Um, so I think you got to go with a little bit of technology, a little CGI. And so you've got to, you know, essentially think about the body of a baby, but the head of an adult actor that we know CGI'd upon it. And I think given the sense of being mischievous, of always being a great side character, of always being there kind of on the fringes and, and really having good range, his heart being in the right place, uh, I cannot help but picture the scantily clad baby body with the head of Paul Giamatti atop it. I think that's a, it's a, it's a striking image and I think it would make for a wonderful performance. I don't know uh, how good Giamatti is in terms of archery, but again, CGI can handle CGI, the bulk yeah. of the work on that. So um, that's, that's my sense. I think there are elements of the story that could make for a good movie, but the end to end Cupid movie starring Paul Giamatti on a baby body uh, is, is, is something we haven't seen before uh, for what that's, whether for, that's for good, good or bad. Yes. For a good reason. And it would not be an erotic film in, in the yeah. uh, the sense of how those movies have ended up today, although it would be based on the character that gives eroticism its name. So you know, I, I swear I thought you were going to go back to Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> <laughs> you got to keep it fresh. Yeah, only so many times. <laughs> That's right. Well, what about you? What about uh, Demeter uh, on the screen? Uh, so, you know, I think... You know, and I thought about maybe a little bit different that I, I would really focus on that central uh, Persephone myth. Sure. Um, I think I would make it a limited series. Mm. Um, you know, opening scene establishes that close mother-daughter relationship. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, anytime you see a happy family in the beginning of a movie. Not going to be know, good. Like, there's like, yeah, there's something bad's going to happen there. Bad. There's the happy breakfast season. They're all joking around. <laughs> We've got their busy lives. They're like, oh, yeah. One of those kids is going to get abducted. It's just, <laughs> She's going or, there, to or there's going to be a huge earthquake and they're going to be separated. <laughs> it's not going to be good. Uh, and so, you know, that I would start with that, that trope. And then um, you build up the abduction. Maybe you keep seeing the shadow of Hades or his servants sort of just off screen or just sort of flitting in the background, um, you know, and then you play with that, her being separated. Like, no, don't go off. Don't go off to collect those flowers because you know what's going to happen. Yep. Um, chariot bursts out of the ground. Um, you have the whole search scenes. I would probably throw the air sickthon in the middle of the search scenes. Like, mm -hmm. so she's already a little bit, uh, you know, she's already upset. Um, you've got uh, part of that, you know, and one of the side stories is uh, Persephone's attendance. Uh, Demeter turns into the sirens. Right. Um, and uh, as punishment for them, not, not uh, keeping track of her. That would be uh, dramatic. That'd be a, yeah. an exciting scene. Yeah. yeah. So then you got Hecate uh, comes in and the plot's discovered. And then, uh, yeah, I would have, that's, that's when you uh, reveal Zeus's role in it. Um, and the showdown with Zeus starving of mankind, all, all yeah. that, all that kind of good stuff. So um, yeah. Um, and then, and then you have the deal. Um, so I think it's probably a six, six to eight episode 
season. That's uh, a lot to pack in. Yeah. yeah. Pretty high yeah. CGI budget on that for yeah. all the special definitely, effects. Definitely. I mean, not, not as high as Paul Giamatti's head in a baby <laughs> no. body, but no, this no, is what no, Hollywood no, is no. for. Yeah. And uh, for casting, you know, I don't, uh, I don't know. For some reason, I thought of uh, Jessica Beale. Was, mm, was, uh, interesting. Was, which is an interesting kind of the right uh, age and such. I love so, it. Great, um, great, great performer. Probably could use the work. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, it's gonna. That's I did want to bring back into the the series, the Scarecrow movie. So that because they are basically using uh, that Demeter Persephone myth, but they've set it um, in modern times and. Uh, somehow through some very specific ideas they seem to have about the time-space continuum. Ah. Uh, she's called up through the scarecrow uh, <laughs> to help a, a, a teenage uh, girl going through a difficult domestic situation. Very. Um, nice. So, you know, and I think on the, on the Cupid thing, you know, depending on, if you just focus on uh, you know, kind of the, the psyche uh, bit, you know, maybe maybe that's a little bit stronger, but um, <laughs> with you know, but then you lose Paul, Paul Giamatti unless you, you just uh, you CGI Paul Giamatti onto a teenager's body. Yeah, I mean the guy's got range, so we you yeah. know, don't, never count him out. He can be right, John Adams right. over here. He can be right. sideways over here. Yeah. And and I and one thing I came across on the IMDb searching is so there was a nine. I think it was a 1981, uh movie called eros where a college student discovers that his roommate is in fact the great guy oh my goodness i feel like a dereliction of duty for not catching that that's uh it it makes sense that i haven't heard of that movie (laughs) no that it hasn't Uh, stood the test of time but wow uh, well, maybe, maybe maybe we'll have to see if it's that's out there somewhere. Or VHS copy at the uh, local blockbuster. Yeah, right. Um, you know, so, but I think you you lose points if if you have to kind of, uh, you know, it's interesting when, if a character can be moved in and out of time. But if if you have to do that, I think that maybe you lose a little, yeah, a little points. It's it's plus if it, if it's a timeless, adaptable story. But, um, you know. Much love to Paul Giamatti, but I think I'm going to go. Uh, I'm going to go with Demeter on this one. I, I I think I will join you. I think you've you've talked me into it. That is a uh, exciting idea for a limited series. I think the, the the makers of Beauty and the Beast were wise to contain that story and and really kind of decupitize it, uh, which I think gives yeah. it its strength. Um, and yes, an actual all Cupid movie I think would be box office poison uh, for for many reasons, if for no other reason than. <laughs> The, the slug having to do with both eroticism and a young chubby baby. So that alone probably should keep it off right. the silver screen, which, which gives Demeter or Demeter uh, the win this week. Am I, am I right in my yeah. math? That, that is, that's correct. It's, it's three, one, one, three, one, one, uh, so a closer race than, uh, than episode one, but yet a decisive victory. Episode one was three, two, because there were no ties. That's correct. Okay, you're right. Yeah. So, so this is a little, little bit, uh, a little bit uh, wider. We we could have ended in, in a tie if we'd both gone for, you know, and and uh, uh, that obviously with uh, the making Beauty and the Beast, there was a film in there, but uh, you know, it's still it's it's sort of Psyche's movie also. That's true. That's true. I mean, it starts with beauty, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. It does. All right. Outstanding. So that should do it. it. Uh, 
another riveting episode, episode two, God versus God. We hope all of you at home have enjoyed it. Uh, we have a few a few thank you items at the end uh, here. I want to thank once again Andy Snow, the DJ from here in Chicago, who provides our theme yes. song. He is andysnow.dj. And by the time you're listening to this, the full version of the God versus God theme song will be available to stream on Spotify. So excellent. Be sure to look that up and listen to the full version to recreate the God versus God experience in high fidelity. Uh, I also want to give a shout out to Edith Hamilton's mythology, the quintessential text for, for all things right. mythological, who was a big influence on the retelling of the Cupid and Psyche story. Um, should mention our Twitter handle is God versus God pod. Right. And, and once we, again, uh, by the time you're listening to this, you will be able to go to God versus God.com for a website that will contain the full archive of this fine broadcast. And the Facebook God versus God look for uh, this on anywhere you feed fine podcasts. Anywhere you feed your ears. Yes. Uh, like review uh, all that good stuff. Please do. And we will, uh, after we're done here, we'll let the fates decide what our next episode serves up. But until then, Andrew, always a pleasure. Well done. You too. Let's All let right. Andy Snow play us out. Cheers, folks. Right. Bye.